Okay, this is t my inter my interpretation of the trimetal generator in Nikola Tesla, not William Line. I have my own version now. I have enough experience that I don't have to quote him anymore. Uh, when he quotes Dort Jr., who claims that copper is the active, that part I can agree with, although we would call it the reactive, the reactants. Iron is the magnetic because it's ferromagnetic, and aluminum is the reflective, which of course makes no sense unless you're a radar operator and you know that all your parabolic dishes are made of aluminum. So what? What does that have to do with us? Well, aluminum is the dielectric transmitter. Iron is the receiver of the dielectric and converts it into ferromagnetic. So that's the additional feature to iron that we didn't know about. And to say that aluminum is the reflective or the reflector doesn't really help us, but it is an emitter of sorts, I guess. I don't know. I guess I need more time with this. Anyway, and copper is the one that encourages reactants, which um, in every case is reactive voltage. Um, due to various impedances and simple resistance within a framework of time. In other words, current uh, is the byproduct, but <clears throat> um, only in a reactive sense. In other words, it doesn't. Tr it, it does not transmit current per se. Silver will do that. Gold will do that. You know, but copper reacts to the application of real voltage against the terminals of a piece of wire or a coil by giving us a reaction, a voltage-oriented reaction <clears throat> that is due to the various impedances such as inductive impedance, capacitive impedance, and simple resistance of the wire within a framework of time. So over time, it means it's dynamic. It's you know, they do it differently in electrical engineering. They, they do delta something divided by delta something, you know. And I'm just saying within a framework of time uh, to imply that same idea. That it's over a span of time you get changes uh, due to the element of time. So it's no longer watts and Ohm's law. Now we got joules. We don't have a law that's the, the appropriate version of, the accurate version of Ohm's law. We just have... Ohm's law, which is an oversimplification of reality that does not exist. Current does not exist, and watts do not exist, except as a fiction in the mind of the electrical engineer, or the mathematician looking at Ohm's law. They're fictions. They're made-up fictions to overly simplify the topic, and they never give the advanced student of electrical engineering the more accurate version which is applied voltage times reactive voltage divided by various impedances and resistance within a framework of time, or pert unit of time, which gives us joules, not watts. They never give anybody that version. Anyway, so this is my version of the definition of Tesla's trimetal generator. As I see it now from the standpoint of this speculated circuit that I have in mind for the Amon device. Now, there's a little twist to the device that I haven't shared with you because I didn't know about it until recently. And I'll give you a hint. It helps the aluminum perform its parametric function. 
And you have to go to Joseph Cater, who wrote a book or two books that are available or used to be available. I think they're out of print now. I got one of them, and he talks about the Searle device, S-E-A-R-L-E, from the 1950s, the early experiments. Searle lies when he says, and you would think he, he would know more than Joseph Cater knows because he's the guy who was there. But he informs us, Searle informs us, that it was electromagnetic, his initial experiments all along were no different now than they were then, and that's not true. Joseph Cater has a different version of this of this the early Searle experiments, either in the 50s or the 60s, I can't remember which decade, in which a wooden frame covered with a thin veneer, a thin um, film or sheeting of aluminum foil in the shape of a saucer, you know, convex top, convex bottom, put them together like two pie tins, and you get yourself a saucer. He had an axle, a spindle arrangement in the center. They would hook up to a spindle. On the top side was open so that you could put it on the spindle by easing it down and then take it off. There was nothing to latch it on the spindle except gravity pushed it against the bottom cross piece, underneath of which was a gasoline-fired engine, and he got it up to a certain minimum speed, and that thing was running, and after a few minutes, it began to pick up speed on its own. The, the, the device, the, the, the disc, span, spun faster than what the gasoline-fired engine could provide. And then it lifted up and hovered in the air uh, for a while, and again increased its RPM and then took off at lightning speed, so to speak, in the direction of the stratosphere and was never seen or heard of again. Um, and so basically he was defying gravity just by spinning an aluminum shell, which had no mass of aluminum to speak of. So if it's reflective, that means, according to Dort Jr., that means that the aluminum does not want to retain electrostatic force, it wants to get rid of it. It wants to expel it. Anytime it's applied, it gets rid of it. And so, it acts very good as a parabolic surface for radar uh, dishes and whatnot. Um, but it also acts good for the surface of a UFO that just happens to be spinning. Now, UFOs don't normally spin. Unless, of course, they have aluminum discs, homopolar discs, inside of them that are spinning at a certain rate. Now you get lift, just by the fact that they spin fast enough. And I would imagine enough surface area, because this is the dielectric force, so we, we deal with surface areas, like the surface area of the dielectric uh, layer in between two plates of the capacitor. It now becomes an issue of surface area versus uh, depth to give us capacitance. And so his, his UFO craft had um, you know, maybe not the greatest capacitance, but it had some, but it didn't want to hold on, well, actually, uh, <laughs> correction here, well, no, um, oh, I get it, right, it would probably put it on the interior, it would probably ionize the air molecules on the inside, ooh, it became a generator, because those ions of air failed to turn into a plasma, first of all, it wouldn't fry itself and blow up in flames. 
But second of all, it becomes a controlling feature to any conductive surface nearby, such as a coil or the skin of the UFO. Probably started to generate power in the skin. And that's why it probably revved up its RPM, because it became a generator, a rotary generator. It became a rotary generator. Oh, this is cool. I love this. But because it's aluminum, it has to expel its reactive voltage. According to my version of Ohm's law, reactive voltage is the end product, not current. But it does vary in time to make it look like what we call as current, but current is a fiction, a notational uh, shorthand for what I describe as more complicated, reactive voltage divided by various impedances and simple resistance within a framework of time or over time. You don't want to say all that, so you just say current anyway. But it wants to expel it as a dielectric field, and so the field surrounding this craft, so to speak, this experiment of Searles back in the 50s, according to Joseph Cater, C-A-T-H-E-R, or Cather, I suppose. Um, he was on Amazon, but now you may have find it hard to get any of his books. I don't know. So it wants to expel, by paramagnetism, the reactive voltage that would otherwise be building up in the shell and get rid of it. And some of it goes inside and some of it goes outside. Cool. Okay. So this is my take on the three, the tri-metal generator. You know, what are their properties? And it makes sense to me um, because of the, uh, the, the Amon device. It's the dielectric plates that are transmitting dielectric force. One-way direction, the barrel-shaped iron coil receives it and converts it into ferromagnetism. One-way direction. So now let's look at cosmology to verify this standpoint. I hold that space is a singularity, and the only reason why it has any apparent shape or distance, blah, blah, is because of the matter inside of it gives us multiple points of reference to subdivide the singularity known as space. And I say it's a singularity for a reason. Not just off the top of my head like I'm full of hot air. I say it because Nikola Tesla invented variable vacuum tube capacitors and they were commercialized I think a year before his death. You can look it up on Wikipedia. And you can get them from Russia. You can on eBay. They sell them on eBay from Russia. So a vacuum is a dielectric medium, just like glass or mica. And that means that the voltage changes inside your liver, let's say, or inside your brain. Yeah, let's say your brain. The changes in voltage inside your brain are instantly rec uh, registered, recorded, everywhere in space simultaneously. Because space is a dielectric. And where are you going to say the charge inside a capacitor goes? You have to know this business that Eric Dollar you know, teaches, that you take out the uh, plates and you put in new plates. The charge still remains in the same dielectric material. It hasn't gone with the plates. It stays with the dielectric. So if space is a dielectric, that means any charge placed anywhere is recorded everywhere. And that means you get instantaneous um, readout <laughs> or reception, if you can call it that, because nothing moves. 
you know, to say a longitudinal dielectric, a magnetodielectric, is a motion, a compressed wave that takes 50 times faster than the speed of light to travel, I beg to differ. I bet you that's simply a response time at the, at the receiving end. I don't think it takes any time. I think it's instantaneous. And this is why mental telepathy across vast distances of the universe can be and has been reported to be instantaneous because the brain is not looking for current changes. It's looking for voltages because that's the only thing that exists anyway. So it records the voltage, it notices the changes, and interprets that as telepathy or whatever you like. So, um, that means, um, let's see, what does it mean? <laughs> um, well, nothing really. <clears throat> Where did I, what was I going with that? Oh, cosmology, sorry. <clears throat> so the sun is hollow. It's a planet, a solid planet. The surface of the sun.com, look it up. It's a hollow, solid planet. They don't say it's hollow, but according to Eric Dollar, all planets are hollow. And so it is, since it's a planet, it has to be hollow. I hold that a non-plasma, but pr uh, proto or pre-ionizing gas is in the center, orchestrating the whole affair. Regardless, the chromosphere that we see lit up with light and heat and various radiation uh, wavelengths is the load that's burning up the energy of the sun because of its proximity. Meanwhile, the planets are additional loads, but they don't exhibit the same values of dissipation of energy as does the chromosphere because they're further away, all right? Because the voltage charges, you know, when we leave the center of the earth, the center of mass of the earth and go further and further away from the surface of the earth, the voltage keeps getting more and more positive and less and less negative. That tells us that the electrostatic field of the Earth is in graduated layers, okay? So, but because the Earth is conductive, uh, the surface is pretty much all the same charge. And so if you have mountains, that's the same charge, even though it's elevated to the valley, it's the same charge as the pit of the valley. <clears throat> anyway, since space is a singularity, wherever the dielectric field is coming from, God knows where, as he put it, into the, into the universe, all stars that are made of the same material as our sun, the surface of our sun is calcium ferrite. It's a, it's a magnetizable substance made of silica, oxygen, um, calcium, and iron. It receives the dielectric force from wherever it's coming in the universe and translates it into current, and that erupts as, uh, what are they called? Um, solar flares. But the solar flare is actually what we see, but there's a lightning strike rising up from the surface of the sun and entering into the chromosphere, ch charging it, keeping it charged, and creating the solar flare above that lightning strike that's going from the surface of the Earth to the sun. Now, um, Eric Dollard would differ, beg to differ, that the charge actually is being sucked in at right angles to the path of that lightning strike, which means that the chromosphere is not being charged by the lightning strikes, it's actually dissipating into the lightning strike, but it's being charged directly by the ferromagnetic field created by, this, by this, the shell, the hollow shell of the sun. That would make more sense. Okay. In any case... 
<clears throat> the shell is receiving the dielectric field from somewhere else in the universe and getting charged up, and that's what keeps the chromosphere going. And that's what lights up our sun. And so we have this cosmological parallelism that one could speculate because there's nothing to prove differently. My theory is just as good as all the other physicists coming up with their damn theories. Uh, mine is no better. I flunked physics in, in uh, several decades ago because I, I, on the final exam we had no quizzes, no tests, just one final exam at the end of the semester and our grade was based on that alone. And I thought, you know what, they can come up with theories, so can I, and I bet I can do a better job. And I wasn't really as insightful then as I am now. But regardless, the teacher didn't appreciate my, create, my creative writing exercise, and he flunked me. He flunked my exam, and he flunked me in that, and then I got pushed out of that university for one semester. Oh, I'm sorry. So my hint is this. We have to boost the paramagnetic quality of aluminum so to get it to export the dielectric force from within itself more quickly at an accelerated pace than its property would encourage. How do you do that? Well, I just gave you a hint. It was Searle. That's the hint. And that means that the Amon device may not be derived from reading a patent of Tesla that is no longer in the public. It may be derived from a simple little device that everybody used to have outside their building, but has been replaced by a digital version. Boy, I gave you so much hint that I practically gave it away. So I'm going to leave it at that. The other thing I have to add is that all connections have to be welded. Copper to copper, aluminum to aluminum, iron to iron. And the only galvanic difference between two, any two of those three metals is the gap inside of the so-called transistors, what I call transistors, but they're baking soda borax diodes being um, modified to function kind of like a transistor. Whether or not anybody accepts that <laughs> silly notion of mine, that's the way I view them. And I didn't realize I had this idea several months ago, about a year ago, when I was working on my Wikiversity draft, uh, Free Energy Does Not Exist, which is now no longer there. You have to go to my website, uh, vinyasi.info, to find it, forward slash Mo's Law, all one word, M-H-O-S, Law, forward slash, um, well, and then you look down the column of the index, and you'll see Free Energy Does Not Exist as a directory, and you go into that directory, and you'll find way down at the bottom of that list, transistor versus um, transistors versus diodes or diodes. No, transistors versus diodes. And because I have to remind myself what a diode looks like and what the where is the cathode and where is the anode, because I keep getting it mixed up. And I'm sorry, I've done this in pr my prior podcasts. I've gotten the anode mixed up with the cathode as to which side is the aluminum terminal or lead or electrode in a borax baking soda diode. So I'm sorry for my mistake. I'm still new at this. I'm, I learn as I go along. So, um, but what the picture that I have and the various circuits that I simulated and posted on my Wikiversity text were earlier versions and they're different. They're not exactly the same as what I've come up with recently. And so, 
don't take them as what as, as examples of what I'm promoting because it's not true. But it's interesting, they, they come close. And so it's illustrative to look at them and see how they differ from the podcast that I've done recently in describing the Amman circuit. Of course, forgetting for the moment and forgiving me for my mixing up the, the leads of uh, the transistor. I didn't know it was the ba- the gate is called the base, <laughs> so I'm still learning. Sorry. All right. To finish this podcast, I have to give away the secret. Forget about the hint. It's spinning aluminum discs, two of them, a pair, extended out from the main aluminum wire trunk, the trunk uniting the two transistors, the, the, the base of the two transistors, the two bases. Out from that trunk extends two more aluminum wires whose terminus terminates in a spinning aluminum disc, which probably would perform better if it's perforated, just like the aluminum disc in the water meter is perforated and made of aluminum. <clears throat> now, in the electromechanical water meter, this is why I had to break the hint, the secrecy of the hint, there's a C magnet whose terminals are on either side of the spinning disc to act as a magnetic brake to slow down the disc to keep to, to keep it um, somewhat consistent with a metering action, rather than allowing it to accelerate to the point of self-destruction or any faster, let's say, to the point of self-destruction. So that means more power gain. It's going to throw off more electrostatic force that the barrel coil will pick up. So a there's. Versus B, there's option one. There's the possibility this thing could accelerate and explode in your face anyway, despite everything so far, which might require a C magnet whose terminals are on either side of this spinning disc. But we have to get the power up because most people think, well, how can you get power out of it? Good question. By these various techniques to boost the power, but we have to make sure the power doesn't get out of hand and boost too much. So we might need a C-magnet on either. So instead of it covered with a dielectric, now I'm presuming that it's simply perforated. It's a lot easier, I guess. I don't know. Whatever. And it may need a C-magnet. It may not, depending on how much power you want. You may need to file off the terminal ends of the C-magnet to get just the right spacing between the tip of the terminal, the face that's facing the, each side of the aluminum disc. Be that as it may, now that completes my podcast.